Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. And particularly welcome to you if this is your first time or you're visiting, uh, but to everyone uh, online and here face to face, it's great to see you here. Well, who do you think the face on the video is? It looks like Morgan Freeman, the actor, but it's actually a computer-generated avatar made to look and sound like him. At first glance, we think we know the person we see. And unless we were told otherwise, I'm guessing that you would probably also be fooled into thinking that that was the real Morgan Freeman. It's easy to get sucked in these days to thinking that we know someone, uh, especially online, but we can be very wrong about them. A Facebook profile can put on fake photos or uh, Photoshop photos. It's easy to get the wrong impression. But we can do that with people in the old-fashioned way, face-to-face as well, can't we? We might think we know someone. We might think we know who they are, but then they do something or say something that surprises or shocks us and we realise that we actually, we didn't really know them at all. Well, in today's passage, Jesus asks his disciples who he is, who they think that he is. Peter, who is always ready to speak up, answers on behalf of all the disciples. He shows that on one level, he really gets it. He really understands that Jesus is God's Messiah, his chosen king. But then straight away, he shows that actually he doesn't get it. He has no idea just what sort of king Jesus was or how God was going to bring about his purposes through him. Peter just cannot understand that Jesus is a king who must die. That just does not fit in with Peter's idea of how God is going to work. So Matthew 16 is about Jesus dealing with people who want to fit him into a box. They think they have him and God all worked out. The Pharisees and Sadducees thought that they had Jesus in their box. They thought that they understood that he was this rebel teacher, a heretic. The disciples thought they knew who Jesus was as well. Now, they were much closer to the truth. They got it right when Peter said that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But they also tried to fit Jesus into their box. But Jesus just would not stay in the box. He was their king, but he was a king who would die. And all who would follow him must follow in his footsteps. So that's where we're going today. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, thank you that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. But Lord, you are a king who we don't expect. You are a king that, like the disciples, we could not predict. Because you are a king who shows his kingship and your glory by the fact that you will die. You did die for us. And we thank you. 
And we pray, Lord, as we read this passage and hear your word, that we might be people who follow you and follow you by taking up our cross and dying in your footsteps. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've got four points this morning based on the four points of the passage. And the first point is that the Pharisees and Sadducees thought they had Jesus all worked out. They thought that they had God in a box, that they could keep the lid on. The scene begins with two groups, uh, these two groups of religious leaders coming to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's pick it up in verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now we can be pretty sure that this wasn't a genuine desire to find out who Jesus really was and and how God was going to work. In other places in the Gospels, it says that these same guys came to trap Jesus many times. They tried to catch him out. And that's what they're trying to do here as well. They're trying to put Jesus to the test and to have an excuse so that they can trap him. Because they were convinced that Jesus was a rogue teacher. They were convinced that he was not from God. He taught against what the Pharisees in particular said about the Sabbath, about the law, about a whole bunch of stuff. Their conclusion was, if Jesus doesn't agree with us, he cannot be from God. They'd put Jesus in this box. They thought they had him all worked out. But Jesus, of course, doesn't play their game, does he? He refuses to give him a sign, to give them a sign. He says in verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but I'm not going to give it. None will be given except the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. The Pharisees and Sadducees would have been confused. They would have had no idea what Jesus was talking about at this point. But we know, in hindsight, that he's talking about his resurrection. Jonah, if you know the story, was in the belly of a big fish for three days and three nights and then he was spewed up onto land, uh, given, resurrected in a sense, given a new life. And Jesus was raised from the dead after being three days in the tomb, after being killed from dying on the cross. But of course, all this is a future for the Pharisees and Sadducees. They would have been left confused and frustrated by Jesus' answer. Then Jesus goes back to his disciples and says to them out of the blue, verse 6, Be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now it's the disciples' turn to scratch their heads. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Then they think, ah, yeast, okay, chief ingredient of bread. He must be uh, telling us this because we forgot to pack our sandwiches today. But of course, Jesus isn't talking about bread, is he? He's using a metaphor. He's not literally talking about yeast. Verse 11, how is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching 
of the Pharisees and Sadducees. As I said before, the Pharisees and Sadducees thought that they had Jesus all worked out. They thought that they knew how to please God, that they knew how to keep the law, and that they knew that Jesus could not be from God. Jesus says to beware of that teaching. And friends, that's a warning to us as well. Because we can fall into the trap of thinking that actually we've got God all sorted out. We know the Bible. We we know that we are saved by trusting in Jesus. We pray, we come to church, we we do, we live it, try our best to live obedient lives. And all those things are great. And we are meant to have great security and confidence and comfort and assurance in knowing that we are right with God because of what Jesus has done as we trust in him. But we must not be like the Pharisees who arrogantly thought that they knew exactly how God must act, that God could not be with a rebel like Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't think we know who God will use and how he will use them because we can't. We have to be careful we, we, we don't assume, presume who God will bless and who he will not. Who we can choose to love and serve and associate with. We must never presume to think that we know how God will work. Jesus explains that to his disciples that God works how he wants and he won't stay in the box that we've made for, uh, for him. Uh, so he goes on to explain to, the fa- to, to his disciples, didn't you see what had happened with the 5,000 people who I fed with a few loaves of bread? Then the 4,000 people not long after. There Jesus did something completely out of the blue and unexpected and exploded their expectations of how he would act. And he may very well explode our expectations as well. Next scene. Jesus moves on to a place called Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And he asks them another question. Again, seems to be uh, straight out of the blue. And it's now that Peter shines. This is Peter's high point. He often gets it wrong. He often puts his foot in the mouth, in his mouth. But here he gets it right. Our second point, Peter's high point, is when Jesus asks him, verse 13, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was Jesus' name that he gave for himself. And it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. The Son of Man was a kingly figure who comes down on the clouds from heaven and God gives him the authority to rule over every tribe and nation on earth. God's chosen king have authority over the whole world. So when Jesus uses that term, the Son of Man, it's a very loaded term. He wants us to join the dots that he is the king. He is the king who will rule over the whole of creation. 
Well, the disciples have various answers that they give to Jesus. Some say he's Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. All Old Testament figures. And then some say John the, John the Baptist, who came just before Jesus. But then Jesus brings it closer to home. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. Peter gets it right, he's right on the money. And so Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. God has opened Peter's eyes, so now he can see clearly. And presumably the other disciples as well, because Peter often speaks as their representative. This is possibly the high point in the whole book of Matthew so far. Finally, the penny has dropped. After being such slow learners who seem to never learn, the disciples have finally understood who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, the word meaning God's chosen king who would save his people. And he is the son of God. And here Peter may have understood passages like 2 Samuel chapter 7 that talk about a son of David who would rule as God's son on his throne forever. Well, then Jesus goes on to reveal to the disciples more about God's plan for them that they'd never heard before. Verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this is a difficult passage to understand and commentators tie themselves in knots trying to understand uh, and work out what it's talking about. But very simply, I think it's saying that Peter and the rest of the disciples, not just Peter, will be the foundation the start of this kingdom, this church that God is building on earth. And that as they take the gospel into the world and preach it, the effects of their words will be felt in heaven. And so as people respond to the words of the gospel, that will, have, uh, that will reverberate in heaven. As people accept Jesus, then their names will go into the book of life in heaven. As people reject their words, they will be shut out of heaven. It's not saying that Peter will be the first pope, as some claim. It's not saying that the church will have the power to pronounce who can enter heaven and who can't, because the Bible is very clear on that, that that's God's job. We, Our job is just to declare the gospel. Jesus is revealing to Peter and the other disciples God's purposes of building a church with them as the foundation. What a moment for them. They understood that Jesus is God's Messiah, the King who would rule over all the nations, and they themselves will be changing history as they 
uh, as they are the start of God's kingdom growing on earth under this king. But then suddenly the mood changes and the moment is lost because Jesus drops a clangor on them. In one breath, he talked about this wonderful new beginning with the disciples at the centre of it. And then in the next breath, he tells them that he's going to die. And suddenly, Peter changes from hero to zero. He takes a running dive from the heights to come crashing down to his low point. Let's pick it up from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is all too much for Peter. They don't hear the bit about him being raised to life. All they can hear is that Jesus the King will die. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus then turns to Peter, verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Suddenly, Peter's moment, uh, dream moment turns into a nightmare. Not only does Jesus say that he's going to die, but Peter gets a tongue, massive, massive tongue lashing from Jesus and he even calls him Satan. How could Peter have got it so wrong? Now we can sometimes laugh at Peter in particular, can't we? How could he have had such uh, foot-in-mouth disease so often? But all the disciples... They were really slow to catch on, weren't they? It can kind of make us feel a bit better when we look at them and we say, uh, we might tell ourselves that uh, actually we aren't that slow, that we would never be like that. But let's not be too quick to laugh at Peter because we can actually be just like that. Peter thought he knew who Jesus was. He thought he knew what he was about. He was going to come in glory and Peter was going to be there too, right at his side. He had just put Jesus in a box, the way that God was going to be in a bo- going to work. That was in a box. When Jesus said he had to die, well, his world fell apart. It threatened everything he knew about his master. It blew apart his belief that he was on the winning side, the right side. It threatened his whole purpose in following Jesus for the last three years. But let's not be too quick at laughing at Peter because that can be us too. When our plans and our dreams fall apart, when the job that you believe God has given you, maybe it's a dream job. When things go pear-shaped. Discouragement over a toxic work environment. Frustration that your 
feeling like you're forced to compromise, perhaps with your Christian values. Disappointment that it's so hard to be an effective witness for Jesus. Or maybe on a more personal level, maybe your marriage isn't the rose garden that you'd hoped for. It's such hard work. It's so difficult having to curb your freedom, working out chores, learning to live with someone who's just really different to you. Or perhaps you're single. Perhaps you'd love to be married. But God just hasn't brought that, that right man or woman along. And it's just hard and lonely trying to be content with singleness and worrying about what the future will hold. So maybe you're thinking, God, that's not the way life's meant to work out. The king can't die and I'm not supposed to live with struggle and sadness and frustration. But it turns out that God has a habit of breaking out of our box. The way he works is not the way we expect and often not the way that we would choose. Well, our fourth point is uh, that uh, Jesus goes on to explain that his followers are also to walk in his footsteps by following him to die. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus knew that he had to die for a very particular reason. It wasn't to give us an example to follow. That's not what he means here. Jesus had to die because he was the only one who could die to be a replacement for our sin. No one else could do that. We can't pay for our own sin. His disciples couldn't pay for their sin or the sin of the world on the cross. Jesus is the one who had to do that. And he alone, because he alone is God, as well as being fully man. He was the only perfect man who had no sin. And so he was the only one qualified to die in our place, to take our sin. When Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him, he's using picture language, a metaphor, meaning to die to self. Why? Because we now don't belong to ourselves. We now belong to God, not ourselves. He is our king. We now live for him and not for ourselves. In the New Testament, Paul describes who we are in Christ as having died to our old self. That is, our old way of life. Before we knew Jesus, we are now a new creation. We now belong to him and we now live for him. So what's it actually look like to die to self and follow Jesus? There, there are many things that we could talk about. It really involves the whole of life, doesn't it? But I just want to choose two areas 
to try to illustrate it. First one is career or a job. For many of us, a job is something we look for satisfaction, for status, identity, and of course as a way of making money. When we live for ourselves, then we'll choose a career based on what helps me best, what contributes to these goals. But if we take seriously dying to self, then we'll choose a career or a job based on God's kingdom before my priorities. We'll approach a job the way that um, Jess and Grace were talking about uh, in the interview. Wasn't that great to hear about uh, seeking God's kingdom as a priority in the workplace? Two examples of people who are doing that are our mission partners, Carrie and Heidi and John and Beck, uh, in North Africa and East Asia, respectively. Now, none of them choose to live where they are because it's the most fulfilling career they could have chosen, or because of the pay or work conditions, or because they're particularly nice places to live. They have made very deliberate choices to do what they do for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of wanting to take the gospel to people who have very little opportunity to hear about Jesus. Now, none of us are missionaries, not in that sense. In another sense, of course, we are. But in the sense of taking the gospel to overseas, none of us are missionaries, and most of us never will be. But you can still die to self with your career. Perhaps it means choosing to teach at a school that's more needy than somewhere else with better uh, career prospects. Perhaps it means perhaps it means choosing to work a four-day week instead of five days and foregoing promotion opportunities because you want to do volunteer work or some kind of ministry uh, the other day that you have off. Second example, and this is a broader category, choosing service of others over self-service. Now, maybe you're serving on a ministry team here at church. Um, Maybe, you know, Anson's Connect team or Steve's coffee team or or Sunday school, whatever it is, it's actually possible to serve in any area for to do good things for the wrong reasons. You can get on the roster and help out because you actually, because you want to be seen to, to serve, because you want people to speak well of you or because you think that God will be pleased with you and you want to get in his good books. All these motives, they might look good on the outside, but they're actually self-serving. It's dressing up self-service with a cloak of serving others. Now, please please don't hear me wrong. I'm not wanting to sound overly harsh uh, if those things are, are what motivate you. I'm probably coming across more harsh than I want to be. Uh, And I don't want to cast the first stone because these things are also part of my motivation. Uh, And and none of us do things completely out of pure motives. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
What I, what I am trying to say is that we need God's help not to make serving all about me. And so dying to self as part of serving at church, whatever we do, is a willingness, might be uh, showing, having a willingness to do the background stuff that no one sees. It might be that you never get praised uh, out of a desire to help someone and to take the burden off others. It might, be, it might mean being willing to come early for setup, staying behind for pack-up, missing out on going to lunch with others. Dying to self will be genuinely serving others as you serve God, not yourself. Living that way, dying to self, taking up our cross is difficult. In fact, it's impossible on our own resources. But Jesus said we are to follow him as he leads us. You see, he gives us his spirit to give us the ability to do what we cannot do on our own strength. And the final thing I want to say is that when we do that, it's worth it. It's worth following Jesus and taking up our cross. There will be a prize at the end. Have a look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. There is a reward for living Jesus' way. The king will return. And on that day, if you've been faithful and followed him, he'll be there to welcome you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And then as we live with him forever in the new creation, with him as our king, in a world where everything is made right, we'll know that it's worth living his way. It's worth denying ourselves in this life and taking up our cross. We'll get the band up now and let's pray as they do that. Father God, we thank you that you are a king who went to the cross for our sakes. You're a king who blows our expectations. Uh, You're a king unlike the world's idea of a king. You're a king who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Father, as we uh, set our eyes on you, we pray that you would help us to take up our cross and follow you, to love you, and to give ourselves uh, for your kingdom because we know that it's worth it. You say that it's worth it. And we trust you as you return that it will be worth it on that day as we stand before you. In Jesus' name, amen.